This is a story about a young boy named Philbit. He's growing up in the Deep South in the 1960s and 70s. He loves cars and his granddaddy's garden and an older boy named Knox. In this story, you see how Philbit hides himself and then finds himself. We're talking about Red Clay Susie with author Jeffrey Dale Lofton on this Desideratum. Desideratum means things you desire, things you think are essential to you. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, celebrating story as essential. I hope you meet an author you love and a narrator you want to hear more from. Hey, before we dive into this story, you know that old saying, don't work harder, work smarter? Well, for me, this episode's sponsor, Positron, is all about working smarter. Positron is an audiobook prep and proofing subscription service that helps narrators and publishers do their jobs. They save me time on menial but crucial details, and then I have more time for creativity. Even though the audiobook industry's growth has been incredible, it still feels like a small community. And I think the Positron team cares about being part of that community. They provide free demos, free trials, rollover plans that fit my workflow. Working with Positron feels like a partnership, like they're invested in my success. So if you're an audio storyteller, go to Positron.com, sign up for a free demo, and tell them thanks for sponsoring this episode. Okay, now let's get back to today's storyteller. And he encounters a series of events that shake his confidence and his innocence. But he finds uh, support and help and comfort from unexpected places in, in unexpected ways. This is Jeffrey Dale Lofton, and he's a natural storyteller. Not just on the page, Jeffrey's voice has timbre and rhythm and accent that draws you in. And I felt like instead of asking questions, I just kept saying some version of, tell me a story. And he would. We begin with him telling the story behind the story of his debut novel, Red Clay Susie. I, I, I started writing it just after I left home to go to LaGrange College in LaGrange, Georgia. And being at college was the first time, it was only 30 miles down the road, but it was the first time that I was away from home. The, these white hot memories of my perfectly imperfect family and childhood and teenage friends, all of whom play, played this very formative role in my upbringing. All of it just came out. I started journaling and a lot of what is in the book is what I wrote way back then. I actually didn't go back for decades, and this is what happened. Fast forward to Washington, D.C., just several years ago, and I read two books in succession. I reread To Kill a Mockingbird, mm -hmm. and I, you know, I'd read it 
in school years ago, but I wanted to reread it with my adult perspective. And there was this, it was a shock of recognition. Scout's journey, the way she viewed the world, the, the very um, clearly defined inhabitants of that world. It was something that I did not recognize or see when I read it as a younger person. And then I read for the first time, Call Me By Your Name by Andre Ast And I didn't know anything about it. I had never seen the film. I still haven't seen the film. I understand it's wonderful, but the, the title of the book just intrigued me. It's such a beautiful title, Call Me By Your Name. And there was something about reading those two books in succession. It was, it just cracked me open. And I started writing again. I pulled those journals out and I started writing again. Um, about halfway through writing the first draft, I realized that I was no longer writing it for myself. And that's why I finished writing it because I wanted, I wanted to create what I've come to think of as a roadmap, not a geographic roadmap, but a roadmap to someplace inside oneself. Mm. You have a real passion for words. There's, there's even this lovely phonetic pronunciation guide for aunt and uncle in your childhood that you have cataloged the actual lilt of the language too. And then you do this great thing with words in general. You have a couple places where you're like, this one word means many different things or means several different things. The example I wrote down was the different kinds of drafts. Mm-hmm. Yes. Rotten is another example. Rotten and rotting are pronounced the same way. Uh, they mean very different things, but the, the whole point there is that, you know, sometimes that I-N-G, the G really, is just a little bit too far. You know, why, why put the effort into putting that G on there when you don't have to? <laughs> you can get your point across in context. And, uh, and that's one of the things I love about the way we not only speak in the South, but think in the South. Yes, that economy of that one letter. Some would not call it an economy, but I, th I think, it, I agree with you, Teresa. I think it's an economy of that one letter. Save it for something else. You can do something else with that energy. And draft, draft, of course, uh, this is related to military service. And there's an interaction with one of the characters, Philbert, and one of the characters about being drafted. and and how this young child just has no concept of what it really means, but really cuts to the heart of what the impact is. I just love the way you did it. I thought it was a great study of word and language in a way that I hadn't seen done before. You know, you were taking it through a child's eyes. And yet, like you said, he just went right to the heart of it, out of the mouth of babes, right? But, but there's also this study of language. You also anthropomorphize things. Yes. And several different things, actually. And the first one that was my favorite was the sad streak in a cake. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what a sad streak in a cake is? Well, if, if anybody out there has not had a slice of pound cake with a sad streak, they have not experienced <laughs> this wonderful Southern delicacy. A sad streak is the very, very thinnest layer of the, the cake batter. 
that touches the bottom of the pan. And it doesn't get quite hot enough to cook all the way through, so it's gooey almost. So you've got the little, you know, yellowish, very, very gooey, sweet layer um, that is a result of it not cooking all the way through. And my mother always called it a sad streak, and that's because it, her mother called it a sad streak too, and I'm sure many, many people in the South know what that is. But it's the, it's the mark of a beautifully baked pancake. And if you overbake it, it's dry. But if there's a sad streak, if you can see that sad streak before you even touch it, you know that it is a, you are in for the biggest treat. Yes, and you've described it with such reverence and love and as a, as a delicacy. And yet it is. It's sad because it's an imperfection. It is. It's not, the, it's not perfectly done. It's a little underdone. But that is what makes it marvelous. Right? Yes, and but but what is perfect? Yes. Yeah. It's perfect. And that's one of those little, through entertaining, I hope, people can take away from this story is that perfection does not equal happiness. Perfection, perfection is not the ideal because it doesn't exist. Yes. Yes. So you do this in this sad streak of the cake. Um, which I'd never heard explained quite the way this child, your main character, explains it. It was so comforting to hear him talk about it. Uh, you also, obviously, you brought up in the beginning this his passion for cars. You anthropomorphize them. This is more than a fascination. It's really kind of a connection with people. It, A, makes him absolutely feel closer to his granddaddy. But there's also, like, the characters are types of cars. Ribble. You almost assign a model of car to some of the characters. He views cars as living creatures. Yes. The, actually, so I, I am fascinated and have loved cars my entire life. And I think of them as being, and well, actually I'll show you this. It all started with this Matchbox car, which is a 1968 Mercury Cougar. And this is a character in the, in the book. And this one, some of the Matchbox cars have features, moving parts. This one has doors that open. And as a child, this little car and I visited places that never existed, but only existed in my, in my imagination. And we flew there on these doors that I thought of as wings. <laughs> and I've admitted it before, this car really saved my life. It gave me an outlet. It made me feel less alone when I was so alone inside my heart and head. Mm. And for that reason, I always watched cars, matchbox cars and real cars on the road that went by me. And every year the new ones would come out and they didn't always speak to my heart. You know, they were always my favorites and several feature prominently in the book. And I do associate them, uh, Philbert, um, I've written it so that Philbert associates them with real people in his this this novel because he does think of them as friends almost he actually thinks of the design of cars as as art they're magical beings that have the ability to stir one's heart and bring people together and comfort them and make them safe it struck me though that you have lived in dc for a long time now and i thought how how has that been for you? What kind of, like, do you drive a car now? Do you have a car? 
have a car and it's green. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> like, uh, and, and it is sometimes difficult to get around by car in D.C., as it is in any, you know, city, I think. Metropolitan area, yes. It hasn't dampened their allure for me. The cars transcend their utilitarian purpose for me. I mean, less so now that I'm an adult, but I still see a beautiful car and it stirs something in me that a beautiful piece of music or a beautiful piece of literature or art or food or you know anything that we, we all have, have something that draws us. Yeah. And in some way fulfills us. And cars are one of those things for me. Yeah. So I loved the car fascination and the way it connected with people. The other sort of place that you find lessons is something you brought up a minute ago about the garden with granddaddy. And it starts with the, with the taters pretty early on. I think even in the first chapter, we have a lesson about taters. Can you talk a little bit about that? So one of his favorite things to do, of course, is to dig potatoes because they're always a surprise. They grow underground and you have to dig them up. Yeah. Carrots as well. You know, you just don't know what you're going to pull up. Might not pull up anything. Right. And this is a, uh, an opportunity that Granddaddy uses to show young Philbert that, again, perfection is not a thing that exists in this world. And actually, and it, I don't want to spoil anything. It's very early in the book, but he makes a point to um, very gently, very gently, tell Philbert that, you know, those potatoes that you think aren't worth anything, they're the best ones. Yes. And carrots too. And really anything in the world that isn't perfect, and not just not perfect, but um, but is, is challenged in some way so that it stands out as being so. Yes. Yes, he talks about a bug in the ground could have challenged that particular potato, and now it's grown this direction or it has this hard spot to it, and it's misshapen or what we would think of as initially ugly, and yet that is, in fact, what makes it the better potato. That is what makes it. Work hard. Work harder. Worked harder. Yes. It worked harder to survive, and I think that that, you know, is certainly true of, of life, you know. If anything comes easy... That's great. I mean, appreciate that. But I, I wonder how capable we are to appreciate those things that come easily if we haven't had to struggle in some part of our lives. Yes, he does really respect struggle. And he, of all the characters, I think, feels very fulfilled in his life. He is not an unhappy person in his life, even though there has been struggle. Yeah. And part of his life lesson or part of what feels essential to me is to be happy, to not be afraid. I think some of his lessons really are, don't be paralyzed by fear. Don't let fear hold you back from things. And th really the inspiration for that was, was my own grandfather. My grandfather was the most satisfied person I think I've ever known. Mm. Happy, um, had really rough times endured really difficult times in his life, but he was content. He was so content. He was so fulfilled. My grandmother, on the other hand, was not a happy person. Looking back, it was heartbreaking to watch, to see 
principles, so very different. Their views of the world were not the same. Um, the one thing that they shared was they loved each other very much. And she was, I think, happy in that, but she struggled to see the joy that there is in the world. And my grandfather maybe naturally just got it. And it was a good lesson to, to, to see. Yes, I thought his, his lessons about living a fulfilled life and how sort of an unfulfilled unhappiness is a trait of many of the other characters in Philbert's life. Um, one of the notes I had about that was there's a dog in the story named Radar, and he's, he's penned up. You don't actually spend a lot of time talking about Radar. Like, I think it, it happened in a couple paragraphs. Um, his life is in this pen is unfulfilled. Like he, the line I wrote down that broke my heart was he died in that pen years later, his legs twitching, like he was chasing birds in heaven. Yeah. I don't know how you just hit me so hard with that. It, it's heartbreaking to think of any living thing not experiencing joy. Yes. Even in the last moments of life, grabbing for it, chasing, wanting it so much, and knowing in some way that it's possible that it's somewhere, but they never quite got their hands on it or their paws on it or touched it. Okay, that's a good place to pause and listen to another great voice connected to Red Clay Susie. The audiobook's narrator is Pete Cross, who Jeffrey was a big fan of and was so excited when he auditioned. Pete's work has been recognized with a Sovis, an Odyssey Award, and an Audi. He's a talented storyteller, and I'm so grateful to Blackstone Publishing for sharing this scene with us. This is from Red Clay Susie, written by Jeffrey Dale Lofton, performed by Pete Cross. The first lesson I remember word for word, not even knowing it was a lesson, was in his garden. Hey, Philbert, what you got there? Granddaddy asked. His smooth head eclipsed the sun and shaded me. I got six carrots and five potatoes. You got five taters already? Yes, sir. Philbert, that's real good. But this one ain't any good, I said. What's wrong with it? It's all ugly, all pinched up, and has rough spots on it. No, that's a good one. That's a fine tater, Granddaddy assured me. It's ugly. No, it's a good one. It looks rotted. That's the best of the bunch. His knobbly finger entered my field of vision. See, this is probably where a bug got after it. But that little tater said, you ain't gonna get me, bug. I'm stronger than you. Really? Yeah. And see, that tater had to work harder than that big pretty one right there just to survive. And that means it's got more flavor inside and more vitamins too, I expect. Why, granddaddy? because it sucked up more minerals from the ground around it. It had to, just to fight off that bug and survive. That tater doesn't care that it's not as big and pretty as those other ones. I'll look for more ugly ones, I replied, grinning. Only later in life would I understand what he really meant. 
a wave of devotion and grief overtaking me. That's fine. I know you will, he said. You're about the best tater digger I've ever met, and I've known a lot of them. I liked helping Granddaddy. Before he moved on, he bent over and stroked the back of my head, pressing my hair down. I was suddenly aware of how much heat it had soaked up from the sun. Hey, let me see that carrot you got there. Which one? I asked. He pointed to the one I had set aside from the others. I handed it to him. Philbit, see? You can apply the tater rule to carrots, too. See, this little carrot was growing down into the ground, and it come up on a rock. How you know? On account of how it's shaped. Had to be a rock we missed and left in the row. Couldn't have been a root. And that carrot turned and growed sideways to get round that rock. But it kept on and didn't let that rock stop it. What about peaches? Yeah. If a peach has a spot on it, looks like it doodled on it with a brown crayon, that's where a worm tried to get in. Now in on the rules of the game, I continued. And that peach said, you're not getting in me and ruining me, worm. That's right, boy. And that works for all plants. Tomatoes, too? Yep. It works for any living thing. People, too, Granddaddy said. I think you're, you know, you're inside his head in this whole story. The way that you've told it is, is he's, you're seeing things through his eyes. You're in his head. You, you mentioned that he's misshapen. He's, he is, he's hiding himself. So he wears, he has a misshapen chest, uh, something from birth. He ends up wearing a prosthetic that his mother has cast for him. And so he's, he's hiding himself. And yet for the reader, He's so exposed. He's so vulnerable. And, and knowing from the cover that this is based on real events, I just don't know how you did that, you know? Well, I, I had to do it. So this is, to use a literary term, this is a fictionalized memoir, and I suffer from that, that condition that the protagonist, Philbert, suffers from. But it's as much about the interior of this child as it is about the exterior of this child. This protagonist tries to hide everything about himself. He tries to erase himself, make himself invisible in this world. And, but not for the reader, because the reader is in his head. And the reader sees and hears and knows everything. So... When I, I came out as gay to my parents over 30 years ago, and I did it in tears and with shame because I was so ashamed. And they were mortified and ashamed. Now, we've had a lot of years since then. We've worked through a lot of that. I'm so happy to say. But writing this book for the whole world to read was the second coming out. But it wasn't just a coming out, a, a small part of me. It was uh, 
It was the whole me coming out, every aspect of me. I don't have anything to hide now. And I'm not crying and I'm not ashamed. And uh, it has been an unexpected gift to, to do this. And I had to put it all out there in order to sort of expunge that it has lived me for so many years. It's, it's out of me now. I really loved it. And I think everybody on some level can relate to hiding or masking parts of themselves, longing to be seen and yet masking at the exact same time. Struggle. And it did strike me that you today and for the a couple decades have worked for the Library of Congress. The Library of Congress is like, I think, the world's largest library, if I'm not mistaken. And it's really this repository of culture, not just history, but culture and creativity and the advancement of our civilization, right? Like, it's huge ideals. And that you have been steeped in that. I wonder if I would have written this had I not spent the last 18 years of my life at the Library of Congress. I do believe that it does... We do, to some degree, soak in our surroundings and among people who love books and books and artifacts of, you know, so many descriptions, I think of it as kind of a paradise to be in that setting. So it has, it has shaped me in that way. But I also think that what has shaped me is remembering the really difficult time I had of it. And so here's just one statistic. This is very important for me. So many young people, especially, especially LGBTQ plus queer kids have a rough time of it. In 2022, 1.8 million queer kids seriously considered killing themselves. And every 45 seconds, one of them actually tried it. That makes my heart hurt. So one of the things I, I decided to do other than just to tell the story and, um, and tell it in a way that I hoped it would be that roadmap of sorts to help people who are having a rough time think, you know, I can just stick it out, stick it out one more day. I can find my way because I truly believe that in those concentric circles of humanity, there is somebody, not somebody, but somebody's will embrace you and lift you up so that you one day can lift your own self up and then lift other people up. And that's what I've really, and from my heart, that's what I wanted to do. And that's also a reason I'm, I'm donating part of the proceeds to two organizations that are doing such important work to help at-risk youth, um, the Born This Way Foundation, which is founded by Lady Gaga and her mother, Cynthia Germanotta, but also the Trevor Project. And my greatest hope is that this book will be in every public library because people don't always have money to buy books, but public libraries are where you can find them and access them. And they're more than that. Public libraries are safe places, communities that so many people who, who need a place, a safe place can go. So public libraries are so necessary. Yeah necessary. This story and what you just said about, you know, seeking out people within your concentric circles around you, seeking that out, 
that this story really seeks to be a pebble in the pond, right? Like to create that ripple effect out to surround people that need to hear a story like this. Um, I was going to ask you one more question. The podcast is called Desideratum. I called the podcast that because when I was growing up, there was a poem called Desiderata, and it's full of these life lessons. And so when I was trying to figure out what to call the podcast, I thought, oh, that's beautiful because that means essential things. And for me, this feels really essential to talk to storytellers and talk about story. And so I like to ask authors, for you, if you had to explain to somebody, this is what's essential, what do you say? So I think that the life lesson that I've come to know and wish that I had known as a younger person earlier was, is that bullies are paper predators who have no more power over you than you yourself give them. And they are as afraid of the world and life as you are. And that's the reason they behave the way they behave. And, and once you understand that, it's as if a gentle wind comes along and just catches the edges of them and lifts them away. And your body is precious. And any imperfections, real or perceived, please treat it with kindness and care and love so that it can take you as far and as long as it is able. I also would say that it is the quality of one's heart and mind that matter most. But the most important is that love, true love, is never wrong. Those are the things I wish that I knew. And if I could magically step back in time, I would whisper that into the ear of my younger self. I hope you enjoyed getting to know Jeffrey as much as I did. I put his website in the show notes. Thanks again to the sponsor for this episode, Positron. And of course, thank you for being here. Thanks for listening.